Well, today we, we turn. We've been in the book of, of James for quite some time now. And today we find ourselves in the Old Testament. We find ourselves in the book of Ruth. And so we're going to spend the next four weeks working through Ruth. And, and in, in the Bible, I mean, we see different genres break out, right? And so you see poetry and psalms and elsewhere. You see very uh, didactic thinking in Paul where he says, do this, and, and while you're doing this, let it be characterized in this way. And he goes through and he kind of feels out and he applies it to all these areas of our lives. And then there's, there's James who basically just comes in with a big sledgehammer and he says, do this, bam! You're, I, I said, do, you know, jump, and, and you didn't, so I hit you in the foot. And so that's, that's kind of the approach that James takes. It's just an onslaught right at us. It's just steadily coming at us again and again and again. But man, where we find ourselves captivated is in story. Because we begin to see ourselves in different aspects and different shades of it. Uh, this past week, for whatever reason, I, I was spending time with, with Bryce, and I remembered some different songs from when I was a, a little kid that we used to sing in church. And one of the songs that, that I remember was, remember Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. And and you start adding in body parts, and so you, you, know, you know, right hand, left hand, head nod, foot stomp, you know, body twist, whatever. Whatever you do, I, I, don't, I don't dance well. I'm not fully Baptist, but I'm enough that, that I don't dance well. And so you've got your body kind of contorting around, and so I'm teaching Bryce these songs, and, and then we kind of come around to, you know, he's got the whole world in his hands. And we sing that song, and we sing all these little kid songs, and then as adults, when, we, when you reflect upon them, and you start thinking the truths of some of these things. When I'm singing with my son, he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got, he's got you and me, brother. He's got you and me, sister. He's got everybody in his hand. I mean, that's, that's comforting, is it not? When we think that God has, has rulers, that he's got presidents, that he's got all of this stuff, the universe, wrapped up in his hand. I mean, that's so big, that's so expansive that it's just, it blows us away. But the area that we're, we're hesitant to really see it move in is, man, God's got your life. Man, God's got my life. He's got my children's lives right in his hand. That nothing escapes the power of God, that he holds all things in his sovereignty perfectly, without struggle. You see, amongst the big stories of life and of wars and famine and all these things, what we find are individual families weathering the storm. And so we see history punctuated with large events, nations rising and falling, leaders rising and falling. And we see the same thing in the book of Ruth. See, the book of Ruth opens up this way. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. See, the, the time of Judges took a little over 400 years. And so sometime in this span of 400 years after the death of Joshua, when God was raising up judges to rule and deliver people, we find a single, solitary family. Man, they are they're doing what it takes to get by. They're they are making decisions with what they think is the right thing to do, but they are just 
kind of an ordinary family from Bethlehem. And so it says that, that there was a famine in the land, but we also read that it was during the time of Judges. Now, if you read the book of Judges, I mean, it is just crazy, the stuff that you find in there. I mean, Samson is, is probably arguably the most famous person we read about in the book of Judges. And his, his life was just filled with, you know, one fantastic adventure after another, and it ends in great sadness. But the book of Judges is largely punctuated with the verse we find at the very end. You see, in Judges chapter 21 and verse 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did as was right in his own eyes. Man, so this family lives in a time period that's, that's largely characterized by, by just a great sense of autonomy, a great sense of self-direction and self-purpose, that everybody surveyed the horizon and they did exactly as they saw fit. And so they did the things that, that benefited them the most. They did the things that they felt like would, would guide them in the best direction. Do we not see that same thing today? That as we survey the landscape, we see that, that most people do what seems right in their own eyes. Man, what a contemporary setting we find ourselves in. And so there's a, a famine in the land. What, what does a famine mean other than it, there's no food? There's simply no food for these people. And so they begin to think, oh, you know, what should we do? And so Elimelech rounds up his wife, he rounds up his sons, and he heads to Moab. He goes east to Moab. Now, let's, let's get a little bit of background on Moab, okay? If you flip over to Genesis 19, and start in verse 30, and, and start to work your way through, you read about Lot. Now, you'll remember that Lot and Abram, or Abraham were, were good friends, and Abraham interceded on Lot's behalf so that he wouldn't be destroyed in Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you all remember that? Head nods, some vacant looks, but largely you're, you're, you're with me. And so, that's, that's what we see, and so Abram, or Lot and his family, they head out from there, and, and the city's destroyed, and then they, they find that it is Lot and his two daughters, and they're living in a cave. You know, his two daughters, I mean, they, they look at the situation, and they're surveilling, you know, kind of what's going on, and they said, man, there are, there are some slim pickings here. It's pretty much dad. And so they... they concoct this plot and they both sleep with their father and we read in verse 37 of chapter 19 that the oldest daughter gives birth to a son and his name is Moab boom 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 that was man I had a lot more build up than that y'all can <gasps> that's that's what I wanted boom 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 oh man it caught me by surprise too I mean I was reading through it and I was like what no and so Moab, and, and so this, this is not setting the scene well for what we're going to see unfold. And you'll remember that when the Israelites are in the Exodus and they're, they're marching around in the land that they try and cross, and the king of Moab sends for Balaam and he has them cursed or seeks to have them cursed. Moab, it, it's not like, you know, for the weekend, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot over to Arkansas. And people are like, Arkansas? No! It, it was founded from this incestuous relationship, which could be argued by some people. But, and so, and so they see it, and they say, no, you can't go to Arkansas, please. They're our enemy. You can't go to Arkansas. I mean, we just don't see that same type of thing. But that's what we pick up on Moab. But Elimelech and his family, they look around, and, man, there is no food to be had. 
And over and over again in the Old Testament, we see a direct tie between the blessing of God and the rains which yield crops. And so God has, has stayed the rains. And the crops aren't producing. God's judgment is in the land. And so this family picks up and they leave and they go to Moab. And we continue reading in verse 3 and he says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. And these took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. In five short verses, we cover this family's time in the land. You see, you can imagine that they go into the land, they went there for the purpose of sojourning, so they didn't go there to establish a settlement. They went there for the intention of being a brief period of time. And man, ten years blows straight by. They went searching for the blessing of God because the blessing of God had been removed from the land. They didn't see it as a result of the crops. And so they went and they went searching and trying to find a way to engineer the blessing of God to return to their lives. And they found themselves in Moab. And boom, Elimelech dies. And this woman is left with two sons. And these sons look around and and there's no, there are no Israelite women to be had, and so they go and they take somebody who would be their enemy, and they take those women to be their wives, and they live for a period of time, and they die. We see further as you look into this, you say, well, you know, married people, and they're living together, do they have some type of baby dedication? But we see no children referenced in the text. You see, God further stayed his hand of blessing for this family in keeping them from being able to preserve their line. And so Naomi's in, the, in, in Moab, and she has lost a husband. She lost two sons. And what she's left with are two daughter-in-laws that have no obligation to her, they have no tie to her, but the interesting thing is we see that they agree to travel with her back to Bethlehem. Read in verse 6, and he says, Then she arose with her daughter-in-laws to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So you can see Naomi out in the field, and she's working, and, and just as, as good news tends to travel, we tend to hear about good things happening. So too it happened in the day of, of Naomi and Ruth. And they're out in the fields working, and somebody comes in, and they're like, man, uh, the, the, the bread store, Bethlehem, is full again. God's hand has come back there. There is food for having. The land is fertile and producing once again. And so she says, man, I can, I can get out of here. I can return back to the land from whence I came. And so it's interesting that she, as she heads out, she is taking her daughter-in-laws with her. Verses 6 and 7. Then she arose and she begins to head out. And then verse 7 it says, So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughter-in-laws, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Well, man, like any of you who have gone on any type of significant road trip, 
or maybe you have better luck than I do, but something goes wrong. I mean, you know, your, your kid overflows his diaper, uh, the, the car gets a flat, the, the weather gets bad, you've got to stop for something, right? Well, it, it seems that the transportation hasn't changed just a whole lot because we get along this journey somewhere and, and you can tell that, that Naomi's got this struggle that's going on in her mind. What should she do? You see, she's a, a helpless widow. She doesn't have just a whole lot going for her, and she's taking these two women with her. That, man, they are natives of Moab. They know the people there. This is where their family is from. But when they get back to Judah, I mean, she is taking people that are enemies back into the land with her. So at some point on this trip, you can see that this is just, has, has gotten to her. She begins to think and, and process this information. She, she stops their progression. And in verse 8, she says, it says, But Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go return. She says, Go back. Return. Go back to the place where my sons got you from. Each of you to her mother's house. But check this out. She says, and may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Man, in her despair, in her pain, in her anguish, this is the word that she offers to the two people that are, that are faithful in following her. Go back. Go back. And then she extends this beautiful blessing to them. She doesn't throw it out there and say, you know, you, go back. And, because I don't want you with me. But she says, go back to your mother's house. And she says, and may the Lord deal kindly with you. Now, kindly does a really poor job of translating this idea of hesed, of covenant faithfulness of God. She, she invokes the, the proper name of God in this, and she says, may God himself come alongside you. May he preserve you. May he keep you. May God himself be the one who is loving and being faithful and preserving you. And she, she's not punishing them. She is, in fact, sending them away with this beautiful, beautiful word of blessing. May God deal kindly with you. And she compares it to the way they have treated her and to the way they have treated her sons. She says, may God deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. She continues, she said in verse 9, she said, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each one of you in the house of her husband. I mean, she is already thinking towards what is best for them. You see, in this setting and in this day, what is best for these women is that they find another husband, that they find someone else to offer them protection, to offer them the benefit of being able to have children. So she brings them in, she kisses them, and how do they respond? She says, they lift up their voices and they weep. I mean, this is a woman that they're not beholden to. This is a woman that they don't have any obligation to follow along with. And this is a woman that when she steps in and says that you need to go back, that they cry out. And we see the response in verse 10. I said, and they said to her, no, but we will return 
with you to your people. See, they're quite stubborn. They want to stick with Naomi. They want to continue to go with her and return with her back to the land. And the second of the three dialogues that we see in here happens in verse 11 through 14. And and Naomi's response is just, she says, you don't understand. Look, I've I've got you covered. You go back, you're free. You go back. God, I've I've asked him that he would come in, that he would deal kindly with you, that you find a mate, that everything be taken care of for you. Because this is the reality of my situation. And she spells it out at 11 through 14. She says, but turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husband? She says, I mean, I'm not trying to ask you if I look fat. I'm just trying to say, do you think I'm pregnant? She says, you know, you need to turn back. Are there, are there sons inside of me? Do, am I carrying children? And they've spent time with her. They know the answer to that is no. She says, turn back. Have I yet sons in my womb whom they may become husbands? Verse 12, she says, again, turn back. My daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. She looks at her life and she says, man, I, am, I just can't do another man. I just, Elimelech, he, he, he really took it all out of me. I just, I can't go down that road again. I, I can't have another husband. She says, let me throw out a hypothetical for you just to show you how, how dire this situation is. She said, if I, if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons. So she's saying, hey, look, we're on this road back, and let's just say I'm, you know, we cross the border, and I find this guy, and he's like, man, you are a stone-cold fox. I mean, are, are, you, are you married? She's like, no, you know, I'm widowed a while back. These are my, these are my daughter-in-laws. He's like, well, ha, ha, man, you want to get married? And she's like, well, you know, Vegas is, is like a 45-minute flight. He's like, well, let's do that. And so they get married. They spend this 45-minute flight out to Vegas. And, and, and lo and behold, she becomes pregnant. She's like, if that happened, if, if this insane story happened, and I become pregnant tonight from some man we meet on this trip. It was, it was good looking, uh, by the way. But, uh, you know, a good looking man that we meet on this trip, would you therefore wait until they were grown? So she says, look, I'm not pregnant, you know that. I meet somebody later today on this trip. We get married, I get pregnant. Are you going to wait till they're grown? Would you refrain from marrying? Are you going to wait 10, 12, 15, 20 years for these children to grow to maturity as you age 2, 10, 15, 20 years watching them. Are you going to wait for that? She answers for them. She says, no, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. You see, Naomi looks at her situation. She looks at her life. And she sees the hand of God moving against her. She looks at all the things that have gone wrong in her life. I'm sure she, in some way she looks back at the famine. She says, man, that, that famine that happened, if it weren't for that famine, we would have stayed in the land. We left the land and God's hand 
First, he took my husband. We left the land, and secondly, God's hand moved, and he took my one son, and then he took my other son. And when she looks at her life, she is bitter, and she is hurting, and she cannot see the hand of God moving in her life in any other way than moving against her, other than moving against her. I'm reading verse 14, it says, And then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. This is a group of, of women that are just tied to one another. And the thought of separation, the thought of, of splitting their band is just driving them to tears. This is how closely tied they are. But then this is where we begin to see their paths diverge. In the second part of verse 14, it says, And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And so this isn't the narrator driving in a point of saying, no, look, you've got two daughter-in-laws that Ruth is now beginning to, or Naomi's now beginning to refer to them as daughters. And you've got the good one, Ruth, I mean, and she is just, I mean, come on now, it's, it's Ruth. I mean, she's, she's, she's not bad on the eyes, but she's even better in terms of of faithfulness. And then we've got what's clearly a misspelling of Oprah over here. And she is just, I mean, she's, she's not very faithful. At the first instant she leaves, she bails. And that's what some people have suggested. And they talk about, you know, a tale of two daughter-in-laws. You, what you want your son to marry is a Ruth, not an Orpah. But man, when we look at this text, she tells them she wants them to turn away. And what do they do? We're going to go we're going to go to your people. She ends into this lengthy dialogue where she describes the dire state of their relationship and in the true state. And she says, take those rose-colored glasses off. Things aren't going to get better for me. Return. Go back. She implores them to do that. She begs them to do that. And Orpah relents. She's not wicked. She's not deceptive. She's not faithless. But she follows the direction of the woman that has poured her life out and, and stuck her neck out to defend her. And so Orpha walks over to her mother-in-law and she kisses her, but it says Ruth clung to her. You'll remember in the book of Genesis that we read in the text that a man is to leave his mother and his father, he is to leave them and to cleave or to cling to his wife. This is this same tight bond we see here physically displayed from Ruth's all-encompassing embrace of Naomi. I mean, the thought of leaving her, she walks over and she puts her in this, you know, this, what I imagine is legs wrapped around, arms wrapped around, and she's like, uh, you can tell me to go, but I'm not going anywhere, and, and I don't think you're going to make it very far carrying my weight. I mean, she, she makes herself as close to her as she possibly can. She clings to her. She clings to her. In verse 15, Naomi says again, he says, See, look, Ruth, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow her example. You see, once again, Naomi comes to her and says, Look, it's going to be so hard on you. You have no understanding. Follow the path set before you by your fellow sister-in-law. 
go with her, go back to that place. That my blessing may continue to carry for you there. But we see in the response of Ruth something radically different than Naomi could have ever expected or ever hoped for. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if, when, if anything but death parts us. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. You see, we look at this situation with, with Naomi and with Ruth. And man, Naomi has this great understanding about the work of God. She has this understanding that God is the one who gives and sustains life. She understands that God is the one who brings both a blessing and a curse. And what she sees in her life is the hand of God moving against her. But do you see what she fails to see? This is the graciousness of God. They left the land. They journeyed into Moab. Her husband died. Both her sons died. God surrounded her with two daughter-in-laws whose desire was to support her, whose desire was to come alongside her and be an encouragement to her. And she begs and she pleads, please leave. Finally, one of them does. She turns to the other and she says, be like your sister-in-law. And God provides Naomi support. God still has control of Naomi's life. And this is how creative God is. God uses the person of Ruth, a person whose national ideology is bent against the people of Israel, and he uses her to be a blessing, to be a support, and to be an encourager, and eventually to be a provider for Naomi. You see, the difficulty in our lives, as we get so, we get so caught up in and, and all these things, and some of us followed the same pattern that Elimelech led his family in. And so we start looking around, and we look at everything around us, and we start thinking, God doesn't seem to be blessing me where I am. And we start trying to engineer blessing on our own. And so we start chasing it. And then others of us, when things get rough in our life when we begin to suffer misfortune, when things begin to get rocky, we look at it and we become so bitter that the whole world for us seems gray and drab. And the whole world for us seems nothing but judgment. But you see, in the midst of this feeling of judgment and suffering, what we see is that God is still at work, that God is still providing and in the case of Naomi and Ruth, God does it through the most unlikely of people. God does it through an enemy. 
God does it through someone who has no obligation to follow through. God does it through Ruth. Friends, can I tell you today that some of us have been wandering so long. We've been looking for those things in our life that would fill us for so long. That we've wandered away from truth, we've wandered away from God, that we've, we've found ourselves trying to, to fill our lives with all the temporary blessings that this world can provide. And this is where it's going to lead you. Bitter and alone. But if you follow the stream of Ruth through the end, what we see is that God is bringing about a redeemer. God is bringing about a king, and God extends to us today through King Jesus. A return from wandering, a salve to the broken heart, and a redemption for the sin that we can't seem to cover. Quit striving for blessing. Look to the hand of God. And you'll see the blessing in his moving in your lives today. Let me pray for us.